Well, it's very important that parents be aware of this issue. Uh, so many parents get caught off guard by it. And, uh, and I've sat across from many, many parents and I've gone through their child's history of using a substance. And, and they would look at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would look at me and they would say, well, I knew this was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. Welcome to Fit as a Fiddle. My name is Dr. Sneha Ghazi, and I'm a physical therapist and business owner in New York City. Each episode, we bring you phenomenal guests in the health and wellness industry who share inspiring tips and tangible advice. This podcast is for a community of people who want to keep their mind, body, and spirit healthy and thriving. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please subscribe, review, and enjoy the show. Welcome everyone to today's episode on Fit as a Fiddle. We have our lovely guest today here with us, Richard Capriola. He is an addictions counselor for over 20 years and he is the author of the book, The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And we are really happy to have you educate us today, Richard. Thank you for coming onto the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion and hopefully sharing some information on this important topic of adolescent substance abuse. Fantastic. All right. So first and foremost, we'd love to hear a little bit about what brought you into this field. Um, You talk a little bit about it um, in the book, but I would love to hear your story and to share it with the audience as well. Sure. Um, I started out uh, working many years in education as an administrator for the state of Illinois. And uh, then uh, as I was getting towards the end of that career, I switched over and started working at a mental health crisis center. And we would accept patients from the emergency room a place to stay. And I noticed that a number of them had not only a mental health issue, but also a substance abuse issue. So I went back to the University of Illinois and obtained a master's degree in addictions counseling. I was then offered a job as an addictions counselor for Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital. Um, And I worked at Menninger for over a decade, treating both adults and adolescents diagnosed with mental health and substance abuse issues. I retired from Menninger a little over a year ago, and that's when I set about to write my book because I wanted to provide a resource for parents and families that would help them understand adolescent substance abuse, to become more aware of it, to become more knowledgeable about it, not to become so afraid of it, and just to feel better prepared uh, over this entire issue. Fantastic. Um, You know, you come with a lot of experience and it really shows in the book. Um, For everybody who's listening, again, the the name of the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. And it's such a quick and easy read. You make it very digestible. It's like, you know, less than 100 pages long. And um, I think it provides so much uh, information in such a short and compressed version that is not like a it's not a task to try to learn it. And, and people can really get so much out of it because honestly, so much of what you had discussed, I learned this stuff in like health class in like middle school or high school with the you know different <laughs> symptoms and the things to watch out for. You learn it in, in grade school. And I, I wouldn't have remembered a lot of it. And it was very enlightening to kind of go back and understand, you know, what is the neurophysiology of like, what is the impact that drugs have on your brain? And why is that so important? And why 
what can we do really as a society and as family members and friends to support people as they're going through, um, you know, an addiction. So first, my first question for you really is, you know, what exactly is adolescent substance abuse? And is that, what are kind of like the terminologies that are used in the field? You know, they, people throw out addiction, people throw out different kinds of words out there. And I'd love to hear from you, what's the right way to phrase this and kind of the definition of that? Well, first of all, let me say that um, we don't use the term addiction when we're diagnosing a child or an adult that has a very uh, stigmatic tone to it. Uh, So your child would never be diagnosed as an addict. Uh, If it's appropriate after testing, the correct diagnosis would be a substance use disorder. And we've renamed it disorder to recognize that like many other uh, mental and physical conditions, uh, substance abuse uh, can, can be a disorder. And it can range on a continuum from mild to moderate to severe, depending on how severe the, the, the substance use is, is impacting your life. So we refer to it as a substance use disorder. Got it. Um, and, you know, we, we know that there's a lot of different drugs out there and they have yeah. different types of drugs. And you highlight this wonderfully in the book, each chapter going over each kind of drug and its symptoms, its uses, its historical implications. Um, and we know that there have been waves of certain drugs being more popular than the others. Um, but to make it more relevant for right now, we're talking about adolescent substance abuse and, and I think right now we're just referring ma- mainly to Gen Z, right? Like the population right now in the world who are really experiencing um, substance abuse disorders as, you know, somewhere between the age of 12 to, you know, in their early, like 18 or their early 20s is really mm-hmm. the, the phase that we're talking about. What is different between that group of individuals? Um, and you can, I guess you can also address some COVID implications if you have some information on that for us. And versus, you know, millennials and other generations prior to that when it comes to this topic? Well, I think um, children uh, have have always gravitated to using alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two primary substances that are out there that uh, that kids are using. There is some exposure to more hardcore drugs like LSD and cocaine and some of the pain relieving drugs, but quite honestly, less than 5% of seniors are using those drugs. Kids are still using marijuana and they're still using alcohol. The big change that we've seen in the last three years is a tremendous surge in what's called vaping, where they will take a substance like uh, nicotine or marijuana, they'll use an instrument to turn it into a vapor, and then they will inhale it. There has been a tremendous surge in the number of teenagers who are vaping nicotine and vaping marijuana just in the last three years. And why is that? Do you have any theories or is there there's a reason why that's just become more popular? Because I can tell you from personal experience, um, I know people who were in the last couple of years vaping until I guess in the last six to eight months, there's been a lot more research on the implications of that. And it's reduced a little bit more, but I knew people who did do it. And I was curious why their upsurge happened. Well, I think teenagers <clears throat> teenagers tend to view vaping as um, as safer than, say, smoking cigarettes. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, they're correct, because when you smoke 
tobacco in a cigarette, you get nicotine and a lot of other drugs. Whereas with vaping, you're just getting pure nicotine. But the problem with that is you tend to get higher concentrations of nicotine. So you can become addicted much more quicker. Um, and whether it's a cigarette or it's vaping, you're putting a substance into your lungs that really shouldn't be there. So you run the risk of, of doing some real damage. Um, uh, but, but kids uh, are looking for relief. Um, they're looking for uh, an easy way to use a substance. Uh, they've latched on to vaping because it, it's, it can be easily concealed. It's very, very difficult to pick up. Some of these vaping devices look like pins. Some of them look like USB drives. So they, it, it often goes very unnoticed by parents and by teachers. Yeah, that's what I, I did notice. I think the first time that I saw um, somebody use one of them, I thought that it was a flash drive. I thought it was a USB drive. <laughs> and then I was very wrong. <laughs> yes. um, okay. So I guess my next question then for you is, you know, we know that the, that using drugs, especially as a young child before the prefrontal cortex is developed, before we've really got good cognitive function can be so detrimental over time to to your future brain, right? Um, and there's enough research that shows those implications, both with alcohol and marijuana and a couple of other drugs. But I think probably alcohol and marijuana, like you said, have mainly been more researched because they may be more prevalent. Um, and I guess my next question is when we are in a situation where we may suspect that a family member, relative, a friend who's at that age group is using a, a drug, what is the worst thing that one could possibly do in that situation to address it? And what is the correct thing that you advise near years of counseling to take the first step there? Well, I think, I think the first step begins with the discussion uh, with the child, uh, whether it's uh, your child or, or maybe uh, a relative. The first thing to do is to just have a conversation and see what information you can you can get. Not not to not to accuse the child or to or to shame the child, uh, but to try just to have a conversation to see what information you can gather because that's really what you're trying to do is gather information. Um, that conversation will probably go one of two ways. It'll either blow up and become an argument, and the child will become defensive, or you may actually obtain some useful information. But regardless of how the discussion goes, the next step is to get a comprehensive assessment. And, and in my book, I have a chapter on what what is a comprehensive assessment? What are the types of tests and assessments you need to get a diagnosis? So the next step would be to proceed to get an assessment done so that you have all of the information you need to make decisions. And who would the parent or the relative or the friend, who, who do they go? Like, who would they Google on the internet to find somebody who does that work? Well, if you're a parent, you could start with your family physician. You could start with another healthcare provider. Uh, you could start with a discussion with your school counselor. They often uh, have resources and can make referrals. You could contact your local mental health society or organization. They often can make referrals for you. Uh, my book does have a chapter on resources that identify a number of options available. So there are, there are options that parents can turn to to get information on where they can get assessments done. Perfect. Um, and so I think my on the other half of that question is, what's the worst thing you could do? 
Well, the worst thing you can do is to have the child feel as if you're judging them. Because when we ask kids, what is it that keeps you from talking to your family about things that are bothering you, the number one answer that comes back is a fear of being judged. So kids don't want to be judged, especially not by their parents. So that's the worst thing you could do is to give the impression that you're disappointed in your child, that the behavior is out of line to the point where you threaten to punish them. What you want to do is create an environment of trust so that the child begins to feel it's a safe environment to talk to you about this or any other issue, really. Yeah, no, very, very good point. I think that you know, it makes it very difficult to have that open line of communication. Um, if you feel that kind of judgment really from any, I think this goes for anybody, right? Like you and I had a friend and every time we went to them for a problem, they judged us and made us feel bad about having that problem in the first place, we would stop going to that person. And I think that that's a really good point that as a parent, um, make, of course, I'm sure that there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of disappointment that you might be experiencing as a parent naturally. And that's okay to feel those things, but to make sure that you don't convey that to a child in a way that they feel judged and they feel yeah. like they can't be heard. And right. I'm sure that you've seen that a lot in your practice over the years with parents doing that, right? I have. And, 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 and I've written a, a, a parent workbook that accompanies this main book. And one of the things that I discuss in the parent workbook is communication skills to let parents know that they are very capable, as we all are, of learning better communication skills. And by that, I mean, we're, we're pretty good at listening to other people's words when we're talking to them, including our kids. Sometimes we're not so good at listening to the feelings behind the words. So in the workbook, I try to stress practicing communication skills where you are focusing on listening, not just to the words your child is saying, but to the feelings behind those words. And when you can do that, your child will begin to understand that you really do have empathy for them and that you are really tying into what they're feeling, not just their words, but what their feelings are. Yeah, no, very, very well said. And do you find that a lot of times you've actually referred even the parents to go see some kind of counseling or some kind of um, therapies that might be helpful to them to cope with their child or their children going through a substance abuse disorder? Yes, because many times parents are going through their own type of issues. They may be feeling angry. They may be feeling as if they're a failure. They may be questioning, well, why didn't I see the warning signs? They may be feeling anger, uh, a whole host of emotions. So parents need support too, and they need, they need to have a supportive environment. It might be a friend. It might be a counselor. It might be a therapist, but whomever is there, they need to have some type of support system, somebody that they can talk to, because as they're dealing with this child who's going through a crisis, they're also experiencing their own feelings and their own emotions, which oftentimes can become overwhelming. Yeah. And that's, and I, I don't know if this has also happened, but do you get people into a situation where you're really, um, you know, performing or providing therapy or referring them to have therapy together at the same time to maybe work on those communication skills together as opposed to in separate 
um, interventions? Yes, sometimes family therapy is often called for in situations like this, where because when one child is 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 using a substance or has a substance use disorder, it affects the entire family, not just that child. So many times, in fact, often the case is that the entire family will need support and help. Yeah, and outside of therapy, what are some other treatment options look like in this kind of a case? Well, depending on, 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 the, um, on the assessment and the treatment plan that's provided, there's an entire range of options, which really depend on the diagnosis that the child has received. Some children uh, may do very well with outpatient treatment where they see somebody maybe once a week or twice a week. Some kids might, uh, might need intensive outpatient treatment where they go several times a week. And then there are some situations uh, where a child will need an extended residential type placement. I've, I dealt with a large number of these kids at Menninger Clinic whose underlying issues were so severe that both those issues and the substance abuse needed to be treated. And they were so severe that we were looking at placement in a residential treatment program that might run anywhere from six to 12 months or even longer. But those generally are cases where the underlying issue, the mental health issue is very, very severe. Yeah. And also maybe a lack of social support in those situations would indicate going into a residential place as well, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I, this is a very important topic. I mean, Richard, I know a couple of people in my life who are close to me who have been through a substance use issue and a substance use abuse as well. Um, you know, thankfully, it didn't have to get to a point where there had to be any kind of significant interventions outside of, um, you know, a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy. But it's very prevalent. And the statistics like you show in the book is that you probably know somebody who knows somebody who has a kid going through this, if not your kid is going through this, right? And to some extent. um, And so I think it's important to, the point of this podcast, the point of, you know, your book, it's all educational. It's to bring awareness to situations and subjects that people might otherwise not be bringing into their news feeds and into their social media feeds. Um, It's to really provide a platform where people can um, share that there's a whole science behind this particular type of treatment or this particular field of wellness and that people can have, they have resources to reach out and ask for help because you don't have to go through it alone, which is why I really love that um, at the end of the book, you have all of the references and a lot of the, um, you know, different organizations, you know, I'm, I would just open randomly and there's mothers against drunk driving and, um, you know, smokefree.gov and tons of, you know, support support um, out there in the world. So you just need to reach out for it. And I think that's great that you have the book to offer that information to everyone. It's very important that parents be aware of this issue. Uh, so many parents get caught off guard by it. And, uh, and I've sat across from many, many parents and I've gone through their child's history of using a substance. And, and they would look at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Or if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they would look at me and they would say, well, I knew this was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. And, and many times it's because they missed the warning signs. They never knew what the warning signs are. And that's why I put so much emphasis in this book about talking about warning signs so that parents would feel better equipped to know what to look for and know what to do if they needed it. Because so many times parents are just caught off guard. Every child is subject to being caught up 
by substance abuse. There is no child that's totally protected. There are protective environments, but no child is totally protected from being captured by substance use. Yeah. And also with everybody having a cell phone, the internet, it's so much easier to have access to people and information, which we probably didn't have historically. You have to go out on the streets or be a way to get that drug. And now you can sit in your bedroom and, you know, have that conversation with somebody or a drug dealer. So I think this, that, you know, these kinds of conversations are even more important now, um, you know, and so I think it's great that you, you bring up a really good point that looking out for those warning signs is really key to helping to screen and within the household and understand and parents knowing them is crucial to helping. And you, and you bring up a very good point uh, that, that is the reason why these drugs are capturing so many kids these days. And there's two issues. One is availability. These drugs are widely available. When we ask kids, when we ask seniors in high school, how easy is it for you to get marijuana? Almost 80% of them tell us it's very easy for them to find marijuana if they want to. When we ask them, how easy is it for you to find alcohol? Over 80% of seniors will say, it's very easy for me to find alcohol if I want it. And over 30% will tell us, it's easy for me to find a drug like LSD. So these drugs are very, very available to kids. On top of that, when we ask them, well, how harmful do you think these drugs are? They don't see these drugs as very harmful. They don't see alcohol as very harmful. Only 30% of seniors will tell us that they think smoking marijuana regularly is harmful. Only 30%. So when you combine the fact that these drugs are readily available to any child who wants it and that they don't think that they're very harmful, then you raise the risk of, of them getting involved in this substance. Uh, and when we look at how kids look at how harmful these drugs are, it seems that as they go through school and as they get to go from ninth and 10th and 11th and 12th grade, their perception of these drugs being harmful declines. So they uh, see it less risky as they go through school years. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible, right? The statistics are crazy on, on the perception of drugs and the actual use of drugs. And I'm sure a lot of this is underreported because people feel afraid to share information as well. So, um, so yeah, well, I want everybody to get this book. Um, It's the, once again, the addicted child, a parent's guide to adolescent substance abuse. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, Richard. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience today? No, I would just encourage, as you just did, everybody to get a copy of this book, to be better informed about it, to feel less fearful about it, and hopefully to feel better equipped if they come in, if they're in a situation where this happens to a member of their family or perhaps to a friend who's de- dealing with this. And um, you can visit the book's website, which is helptheaddictedchild.com, where you can find endorsements and reviews and can order the book that'll take you right to Amazon. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Richard. Thank you. I appreciate your your helping with the conversation and your insights as well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone gained a lot of new information out of this episode. Please subscribe and review the show. It means the world. I can't wait for you to listen to the next episode.